Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. We're looking at Acts chapter 27 today. We are nearing the end of this book. It's only 28 chapters, and we're, here we are at 27. So we're going to read Acts chapter 27, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete along Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. 
When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty, twenty fathoms. A little farther they took a sounding and again and found fifteen fathoms. And, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered, he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the, make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the, of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And thus ends our reading of God's faith-giving word. May all who hear it find hope in his salvation. How many of you are facing a storm this morning? Is your ship about to go under? Are you lost at sea with no land at sight? Have you reached that place where you're ready to give up and just throw in the towel? Or perhaps it's not you, but someone you know. Someone in your life who is being tossed to and fro by the waves. They've reached their wit's end, and they're ready to call it quits. They have abandoned all hope. Life can be harsh sometimes. And we can find ourselves in situations that no matter what we do, or no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to keep our heads above water. It's just one thing after another, after another, and... and and as soon as you fix one problem, well, three more rear their ugly heads. And so you start asking yourself, why do I even try? What's the point in fighting? You have abandoned all hope. In our text today, we, we see a ship full of men who have abandoned all hope. 
They, they were ready to give up and, and let the storm just take them away. And yet because of one man, one man who, who was in the midst of them, their hope got renewed. And by the end of it, salvation came to every single one of them. And so the question we must ask is, how did this happen? How, how could one man make such a big difference? Well, in order for us to understand, we need to start at the beginning. If you recall, Paul's world was just starting to get brighter, was it not? I mean, after being stuck in, in Caesarea for two years, after being a prisoner there, he was now finally making his way to Rome, to, to the destination in which the Holy Spirit had called him. And yet the voyage from Caesarea to Rome, well, that, that was no easy task. As the crow flies, the distance is roughly 1,400 miles, and most of that is over water. And in the first century A.D., well, that made for a very long and very dangerous journey. And yet Paul had a calling upon his life. The, the gospel, this message of salvation, needed to travel west. It needed to travel to the city of Rome, which at that time was the epicenter of the world. All roads lead to Rome, Right? And the gospel, it needed to be preached to the, to the head of the Roman Empire. It needed to be proclaimed to Caesar himself. And the Apostle Paul would be the one who would declare to Nero, the emperor of that time, that Jesus is Lord. That he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that even the most powerful man in the world, well, he must bend his knee and recognize that salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But in order for Paul to do that, well, he needed to get to Rome first, right? And like I said before, this is no easy task. If a man lost hope when the dangers presented themselves, well, then death would be waiting with open arms for that man. Let's see how things turned out. Look, Look again at verses 1 through 3. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And so in these first few verses, we, we see Luke is establishing to us how this voyage was going to take place. Many of the main players are introduced in this scene. We have our apostle, right? Paul, this, he was one of the prisoners on the ship. And then we have this man named Julius, a, a Roman centurion, whose responsibility was to deliver these prisoners to Rome. And then Paul wasn't alone, was he? For who else did Luke mention? Luke mentions this man named Aristarchus. 
a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and one of Paul's traveling companions whom, whom, whom we met earlier in the book of Acts. And, and Aristarchus wasn't the only friend of Paul's who was making this journey with him, now was he? No, for, for Luke himself was also present with Paul. And we know this because Luke is once again using the pronoun we. And anytime we, he uses the pronoun we, we know that he is with Paul during that time. And so the Apostle Paul, he had, he had two of his traveling companions who, who would make this voyage with him. And this tells us something. It tells us that Paul had found favor in the eyes of this Julius. You know, a prisoner at that time who was getting sent to Rome. He wasn't allowed companions to come with him. Not, that wasn't the typical protocol. And yet Paul found favor. And we see even more evidence of this kindness being extended towards Paul when, when, when they had dropped anchor in Sidon, right? Paul was allowed to visit his friends in order that they might give to him any provisions that he may need for the voyage. And, and so from the get-go of this, of this passage, we see that even though Paul was a prisoner, the favor of the Lord was upon him. And one can't help but being reminded of the account of Joseph from the book of Genesis, the one upon whom the blessing of the Lord had rested. If you remember from Joseph's life, it seemed like wherever he went and whatever circumstance he found himself in, he always found favor with the person in charge. When he, when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, Joseph found favor from his master. When he was a prisoner in the Egyptian jail, Joseph found f favor from the, the, the keeper of that prison. And when he was before Pharaoh, uh, interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Joseph found favor with this Egyptian king and became the second in command in all of Egypt. And now here, just like Joseph, we, we see the apostle Paul. The blessing of God is upon him. And he has found favor with this Roman centurion named Julius. And yet this favor only extended so far as we will soon see. For, for Paul's voice would later be ignored at a time when it should have been heeded the most. Look, look, look at verses 9 through 12. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Well, now by this time, many months had, had passed and, and they had journeyed very far. After taking many stops and, and changing ships, they, they had found themselves off of the island of Crete in, in a small port called the Fair Havens. If you take a look at this map, you, you can see how this journey went. The, the, the first ship that they were on, they traveled up to the coast of Lycia here near, near Myra. 
And, and it was there where they, they made an exchange. They, they, they grabbed a new vessel, a vessel that was carrying grain to Italy. And yet this new ship, it, it, it sailed through some tough conditions. Because, because, and because of that, they were behind schedule. And they had only gotten as far as Crete. You can see right here, right there, the Fair Havens. They had a long way to go to reach Italy, didn't they? Well, this led to a discussion, right? Should we move forward? Should we press on, continue the voyage? Or should we remain where we are? In the fair havens. And this discussion went something like this Paul, he kept saying, We shouldn't go. It's not going to be well for us if we go. And the captain, the owner of the ship, they both said, No, we need to go further. The fair havens is not as fair as you think. We, we need to find a more suitable port. And, and so, <clears throat> basically what, what, what was going on here was the centurion had to decide whether he would take his soldiers and his prisoners on this ship or not, because the ship was going, or whether they would remain in the fair havens. Now, what's interesting about this is Luke mentions that the fast had already passed. And what he means by this is, is actually the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was already behind them, which in 59 AD meant that, they were, that, that October 5th was now behind them. And so while not exactly winter, it was getting close. And in the Mediterranean, all experienced captains knew that the sailing season ended typically between the mid part of September and the early part of November. And so being that it was now mid-October, they, they were kind of in that, that tweener stage, right? Where the sea might be safe, but it was a risk. Now, Paul wasn't a sailor. And yet, he had a lifetime of experience through his numerous voyages. And so he knew what he was talking about when it came to the sea. And in fact, he had endured hardship at sea more than once. L l listen to what he says in his letter to the church in Corinth. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians 11, chapter, uh, 11, verse 25. <clears throat> he says, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And so the Apostle Paul, he, he knew a thing or, two, or thing or two when it came to these ocean voyages. He had a voice of wisdom stemming from his own experience. And this, this was why he was urging these men to not set sail. <clears throat> lest they face a loss of cargo or even worse, a loss of life. <clears throat> Paul knew that it was too late into the season to be taking such risks. And he was trying to convince these men, to convince Julius that the fair havens would have to do. And yet his voice, it wasn't heeded. This Julius, even though he, he favored Paul, he instead listened to both the, the captain and the ship's owners. I mean, after all, the captain was a professional, right? And the owner was willing to, to, to risk not only his ship, but his cargo as well by setting sail once more. 
And surely if they thought it was fine, then it was fine. And so Julius had made the decision that his soldiers, as, long, as well as the prisoners who, who they had charge over, they would remain with this ship and seek the port city of Phoenix. After all, it was only 40 nautical miles to the west. Surely they could make that short distance without any serious troubles. Well, let's see how this played out. Look at, look at verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. You, you, you see, the, the winds had fooled them. For, for when they had set sail, the winds were coming from the direction of the south, the, where, where warmer air foretold of a pleasant passage. And yet as soon as they, they weighed anchors, as soon as they got out there, the winds changed on them. The cooler northern breezes came down from the north, stirring up this northeaster, creating these gale-force winds, making it impossible to sail against without the ship breaking apart. And thus the only thing that they could do was let the wind propel them to wherever the wind wanted to take them. Look at, look at verses 16 and 17. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And so we see these precautions that these men are making because how strong this storm was. Unfortunately, they, they, they found themselves near the shores of this little island called Cauda, which was roughly 30 nautical miles southwest of where they, where they intended to go. And yet this island, what, what it did, it gave them a, a bit of a reprieve from the crashing waves, allowing them to finally secure the lifeboat that was dragging behind them. And then it also allowed them to, to undergird the ship with these supports. With, and this is important for, for the way that ships were designed back then. They could only withstand so much of a pounding before they would break apart. And so basically what they would do is they, they would wrap these long cables, these long ropes, and then pull them tight, thus reinforcing the hull, making sure that it would stay together during the tumult. And then finally, Luke tells us that they lowered the gear, or rather they lowered the mast, preventing them from being propelled at an immense rate into the Syrtis, which were these shallow waters and very hazardous to ships. And yet, none of these measures that they had taken could prevent the onslaught of the storm. It just kept pounding and pounding and pounding, leading them to take even more drastic measures. We, we see a couple more things they did in verses 18 and 19. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to, the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
And so for two days, they began to lighten their load, getting rid of cargo and, and any of the unnecessary equipment that they could spare. And yet the storm kept raging. And it seemed that, that things were only getting worse. And no matter how hard they fought, no matter how hard they tried, the, the storm only fought harder. Until finally we read this in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And consider those words. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. What does it look like to abandon all hope? To, to say to yourself that no matter what you do, the, that no matter what anybody else does, there is no rescue. There is no salvation. Dear friends, have you been there? Maybe not at sea, but in life. I, I, I had this friend in high school who, whose name was Matt. And Matt was this tall, handsome kid who, who, would, who would smile at you any time you would look his way. He had a lot of friends. He had a good sense of humor. And from what I could tell, he, he seemed to enjoy life. Unfortunately, man, I lost touch after I left for college. But I lost touch with a lot of friends, as typically is the case when you move away. Well, about nine years later, I received news from one of our mutual friends that Matt had taken his own life. That there was going to be a funeral, and my, my friend just thought I should know in case I wanted to pay my respects. Well, when I first heard the news, I was in shock. And this was my first experience that I ever had with a suicide. But when the shock wore off, it got me thinking. I mean, what could have happened in those nine years that made my happy friend abandon all hope? We live in a world that can beat us down. A world that will tell you that you are a failure, that you're no good. A world that will attack you in so many different ways that you can give up hope. It can attack you in your finances. It can, it can attack you in your self-worth. It, it could be a disease or some type of injury that has broken you. It could be a death of someone whom you truly love. The world has so many ways to beat us down. And because of that, there, there are many of us today, many of us who have abandoned all hope. And the reason that many of us find ourselves in such a miserable state is because, because many of us truly believe that there is no salvation, that, that no one is going to come and rescue us, and that we are incapable of rescuing ourselves. This was the situation that this crew of this ship was in. 
One can only imagine the misery that these men were experiencing, being constantly tossed to and fro by the waves day after day, not being able to sleep due to the constant struggle of of making sure that your ship won't break apart, living in this endless darkness, no sun, no moon, no stars, nothing to help you gain your bearings. Just ceaseless wind and rain and and waves. A a raging storm that just would not quit. These men were certain. They were certain that they were going to die. And they had abandoned all hope. And yet there was one man aboard that ship who had not given up. Look at, look at verses 21 through 26. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And before and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, now I can just imagine Paul trying to address these men who were on this ship with, with, with the tempest still raging. He, he, he was probably shouting at the top of his lungs in, in order for these men to even hear him. And yet what he had to say was of vital importance. And what was Paul communicating? He, he was communicating hope, something which these men vitally needed. And how did he communicate this hope? Well, he began by reminding them of the warning that he had given back in the fair havens, that they should not have set sail. Now now you might be thinking to yourself, was this really the right time to say I told you so? (laughs) Paul wasn't doing this as a way to, to say I told you so. I'm sure he knew that that was pointless. Rather, what he, what he was doing was he was letting these men know that, that he actually knew what he was talking about. He was establishing his own credibility so that they would listen to him now. For the advice that he was about to give them was life-saving advice. And what was that advice? To, t- to take heart, right? To have confidence. To have courage. To, to not lose hope. For it is when one loses their confidence, when one loses their hope, that things go from bad to worse. <clears throat> you see, Paul knew that when a man has lost all hope, well, then he's a man who will no longer fight. And when, when a man no longer fights, well, well, then he's already dead. And yet a man who has confidence, a man who has hope, well, that man will push forward. 
that man will more likely survive. And what was the reason that Paul would give that that would impart to them such confidence, such hope? Well, because God had given his promise to his apostle that not only would he make it to Rome, but that in God's mercy he had granted to Paul the lives of every single passenger on that ship, that not a single one of them would die. And yet there was a caveat to this promise, was there not? For God had also told to Paul that in order for them to survive, that they must run the ship aground. In other words, in order for them to live, they must stay with the ship until they run ashore off some island. Now now what is amazing about this is, is that everyone else had given up hope. You know, when the professional sailors, when they call it quits, that's saying something. And yet here was this prisoner in chains giving a voice of courage. And why? What made Paul so special? I believe the answer comes from Paul's own own mouth. I believe there were three anchors that, that kept Paul steady. And we see this first anchor in verse 23. Look, look again and tell me what you see. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I be, to whom I belong and whom I worship. You see, in this verse we see Paul's understanding of his positioning in Christ. And what did he say? The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And so Paul was anchored in the reality that he was not his own. That he belonged to someone else. That he was God's possession. And as God's possession, he he was given over to worship of this God. Look look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Dear dear friends, when, when you understand that you are God's possession, when you understand that you are not your own, it will change your whole outlook, not only on how you live, but also on how you react when circumstances come your way, when trials come your way. And that's because when you understand that you are God's possession, well, then your universe no longer revolves around yourself, does it? It doesn't revolve around your own glory. Rather, your focus will be upon God's glory, this one who has purchased you and who has set you free. And so you'll no longer see things as being as bad luck or some kind of horrible misfortune. Rather, you will know that that the all-powerful God has placed you as his possession in the exact spot that he wants you to be in. And he has done so for his own glory. But there's more than just this one anchor for the Apostle Paul. Look, Look again at verse 24. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar, 
And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And so this second acre that, that kept Paul steady was, was this promise of salvation that was given by God. Paul knew that God had called him to stand before Caesar. That he was supposed to be a, a witness to him of the resurrected Jesus. And this, this promise gave him the assurance that he needed that not even this northeaster, this, this horrible, horrible storm could prevent that from happening. And yet the angel of the Lord had given him even further confidence, did he not? For, for what did he say? That God has granted you all those who sail with you. And, and so this promise of salvation extended not only to him, but, but to everyone aboard that ship. And, and here's the thing. The promises of the Lord are certain and true. And so when God says that he will do something, it will surely come to pass. Paul not only knew this from his own experience, but, but also from God's word. And if you open up this Bible, you will find that it is littered with the faithfulness of God to his people. God's salvation to the ones he loves. And if you are in Christ, then, well, then you are his people. I mean, think of all the promises that you have because you are in Christ. Promises that, that have the ability to bring you confidence. Promises that can bring you courage. Even courage to those who have abandoned all hope. Consider these words from John's Gospel. Look at, look at chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Or consider this one just a few chapters later. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Or how about the book of Revelation? Look at chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. You see, these, these are, are the kinds of promises that, that can carry a person even through the darkest of times. But the question is, do you believe them? Are you clinging to them? You see, it wasn't just the promise that was given to Paul that, that would get him to Rome, that would give him the confidence that he needed to carry the day. No. It was also that Paul trusted in these promises. You see, it was Paul's faith that was the final anchor that kept Paul steady. Look again at verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
Not only was Paul anchored in the reality that he was not his own, not only did he have the promise of God to carry him through, but, but we see that Paul also had the faith that God would do exactly as he said. And that's what it really comes down to, does it not? Salvation can only come about by trusting in the only one who can truly save. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. And so what does this verse tell us? It, it tells us that salvation is a work of God. That it only comes through him. And our role is simply to believe that he will do it. We are to trust in him that he will save us, that he will rescue us. And this is what we see Paul doing. He trusted in his God that he would bring him safely out of the storm. And not only him, but all who were on that ship. Well, Paul's words had restored the courage to this crew. But even though that was the case, their journey was not over. In total, they would battle with this storm for 14 days and 14 nights. And so you have to imagine that the hopes of this crew didn't remain static. That there were ups and downs. Paul even had to stave off some who wanted to flee on the lifeboat. And that was why on the 14th day as well, Paul had to give them some more encouragement. Look at, look at verses 33 through 36. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense, and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. Strengthened by this food and having their hope restored once again, these men were now ready for what awaited them. And they would need to be ready. For very soon, they would need that strength as they would have to abandon their ship and swim to shore. Look at verses 39 through 41. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And so this shore to which they were heading was not as smooth as, smooth as they hoped. Their ship ran up against the reef. It was lodged. It was immovable. And this meant that each man would have to act quickly if they were going to escape before the ship broke apart. 
But with that being the case, something needed to be done with the prisoners, right? They certainly couldn't swim to shore while being chained. And yet these Roman soldiers who were transporting, they, they didn't want there to be any who would escape. For under Roman law, any, any guard who allowed their prisoner to escape, well, that guard would, would incur the penalty of that prisoner. And so they devised a solution. They, they would simply kill the prisoners, right? Look at, look at our last few verses. Look at verses 42 through 44. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so the last thing that we see is that this salvation that God had granted to Paul, it came even to these prisoners. Because of the blessing of God that was upon Paul's life, because Paul had found favor in the eyes of Julius, this led to the salvation of every single person on that ship. It was because of Paul that the centurion commanded his soldiers to put their swords away, allowing even the criminals to make it to shore, allowing even the wicked ones to survive the tempest. And so we see that the salvation that comes from God is not just for the righteous. It's for the unrighteous as well. But why? Why was every single person on that boat saved? Because the Apostle Paul had anchored his life in Jesus. And because he had done so, God was able to use his servant to bring hope, to bring salvation to those who were lost at sea, to those who had abandoned all hope. And God is still in the business of bringing hope and salvation to those who are lost, to those who are in dire straits. And he is looking for people who have anchored their lives in him. I mean, consider all that we just read. And what do we find in this passage? That it was Paul who, who, who had the words of wisdom. That it was Paul who had remained calm and collected. That it was Paul who was able to restore hope to the hopeless. And that it was through Paul that God's salvation came to every single person on that ship. Paul was a vessel a vessel that God had used to bring about his delivery. And he did so in order that the name of Jesus might be glorified. You see, I have to imagine that there were many on that ship who were not only saved from the sea that day, but who were also saved from God's wrath as well. After they had reached that shore, how many of them wanted to know more about this God to whom Paul belonged and to whom Paul worshipped? 
How many of them wanted to know more about this God that, that brings words of promise of his salvation? Words that describe in detail, exact detail, the outcome of their tribulations. How many of them want to know more about this God to whom Paul had such faith in that his confidence was big enough for the lot of them? How many of them wanted to know more about this Jesus, this one who not only rescues from the storm, but brings about his eternal salvation as well? And this is why God places his servants in the midst of these storms. So that God might use us as his people to bring hope, to bring salvation to others. Listen, when you are anchored in God, when you realize that you are not your own, but that you belong to another, when you understand that you have promises in Christ, promises of salvation, promises of life, and when you put your faith in those promises, when you put your trust in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then you will be the one who will be able to bring courage to others. Others who are lost and desperate. Others who believe that there is no salvation. You'll be able to bring hope to those who have abandoned all hope. Yes, salvation comes from God alone, but, but God uses his servants as a means of that salvation. And so if you find yourself in the midst of the storm, then let, then let your life be anchored in Christ. For God will use those anchors to bring both courage and his salvation, not only to you, but also to all those who have abandoned all hope. Let's pray. Father, we truly do thank you that we are not our own, but that you have purchased us through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the, the promises that we have through him. Promises of eternal life and a forever spent with you. And we thank you for producing faith within us so that we might trust in you, knowing that, that your promises are true and that your salvation is real. We pray that you would help us to become a beacon, a beacon of light to those around us, to those who have abandoned all hope, that we might bring to them the hope of the salvation that comes through Jesus. And I pray too that if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't know you, that doesn't know your son, that these words would ring true to them. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they have abandoned all hope. Lord, we ask that you would restore their hope through Jesus Christ, the one who can truly save the one who can truly rescue. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to believe. So fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.